so vivid from when I was about 11 years old. It was a Sunday night after church, and we'd been invited to another family's house. This was the best part of night church as a child in the 80s. All of us kids would be playing outside at dusk, and the adults would be sitting around the kitchen table. I don't remember much else about those evenings, but ingrained in my head was one evening's food. Of course it was, if you know me. This mum served pizzas made from English muffins. And they were incredible. 45 years later, I'm still thinking about them. But that memory, unfortunately, has been tainted. You see, weeks after this culinary discovery, my own mother got so sick and tired of me asking to go back to our friend's house, if only for her English muffin pizzas. My mom attempted to make them. But we didn't have pizza sauce. And so she used ketchup. We didn't have mozzarella, so she used cheese slice. And she cut up hot dogs to serve as pepperoni. Ruined forever. I lost the taste for English muffin pizzas. But I get why my mom did it. She was creative, for sure. But sometimes there are things in life that we cannot make substitutions for. Or we end up with something completely unrelated. Five years ago, I told the story of microbiologist um, Freya Harrison from the University of Nottingham. She had gotten involved in some Viking reenactments just for fun. Is there any other reason, really? And it was in this Viking reenactment club that she met a history professor that was part of the University of Nottingham. And she had a book club that she invited Freya to. In this book club, they read 9th century Anglo-Saxon textbooks. Now, I'm sure you're thinking, my life is boring. Uh, Viking reenactments, 9th century Anglo-Saxon textbooks. Regardless, it was in this book club that they met and they happened to be reading a 9th century textbook called Bald's Leechbach. And it was in this recipe that was meant to treat a lump on the eye that Freya had an idea. You see, it was a safe assumption that a lump was possibly a sty. And Freya, as a microbiologist, was intrigued because she knew, she knew that styes are often caused by the gram-positive bacterium Staphylococcus aureus. And this bacterium causes many severe and persistent infections, including the superbug MRSA. This is a dangerous infection that is virtually unchecked, as we have no antibiotics that work to kill it effectively anymore. In a world with antibiotic-resistant bacteria and no new antibiotics in years, we're in a dangerous place. So Freya and a few others thought that they should try to replicate this recipe as an experiment in her lab. She wondered how effective a thousand-year-old treatment would be. Now, this recipe was specific. They needed ox gall, cow bile, the stomach acid from a cow. There was garlic. There was onions, wine in equal parts to the cow bile. And the list went on. The instructions included keeping it chilled at four degrees for nine nights, specifically in a brass pot. And are you ready for it? Put in a horn and applied with a feather to the infected eye. Now, this sounds right out of Harry Potter. But they sourced their materials. 
They stuck to the book as close as they could, even finding wine from a vineyard that existed in the ninth century. And when it was all done, they applied it to the petri dish infected with the bacteria. They also tested it on biofilm, which is apparently the more difficult form of this dangerous bacteria, and it's more difficult to kill. Biofilm can live on doorknobs and light switches. And then finally, they tested it on a wound model in an infected mouse. The results astounded them. When they tested this concoction in the petri dish, it killed the bacteria. When they tested it on biofilm, they were floored to discover once again it was effective. Then when they tested it on an infected rat, they were astounded. They had discovered a new antibiotic. Well, actually, an old antibiotic from the 9th century that may be used to fight the superbugs we're fighting today. And they didn't understand it. The researchers found that none of the individual simple ingredients alone had any measurable effect on the bacterial infection, MRSA. But the combination was unbelievably effective. Now, as I listened to one of the doctors interview on CBC Radio years ago, I remembered that they seemed giddy over this discovery. That something so powerful was under our noses, in fact, even in our pantry. While they are common, ordinary ingredients, something happened when they were combined in the right way, in the right quantity, for the right amount of time. And as I listened to her being interviewed, they were discussing how this was possible, and the phrase popped into my head. It's the compounding effects of seemingly unrelated things. You see, none of these elements on their own could actually kill the bacteria. But when these different ingredients are combined in just the right way, they actually create something that can heal. In fact, I read last year that Freya's discovery has made its way to human trials with great success. This idea of compounds is incredible. A compound meaning the bringing of more than one element to create something greater than the sum of its parts. When I listened to this interview on CBC, my mind went to the ideas of Jesus. I couldn't help but think that so much of his teachings are made up of the compounding effects of seemingly unrelated things. I think, in fact, so many reading through Jesus' teachings, um, thinking about most of what he says, many people just think it's filler. He's just biding his time to get to Easter so that he can die, after all. But in the big scheme of things, many wonder, does loving hard-to-love people really matter? Is fostering humility really that important? And when he talks about forgiveness, isn't that really more of a suggestion? Perhaps this explains why so many so-called Christians have not discovered the beautiful side effects of following the way of Jesus, because truthfully, maybe they aren't. You only get to where he's leading if you follow. And he tells us he's leading us to life. Life in this age and the one to come. But if you listen to what Jesus teaches, I mean really listen, and don't make substitutions for comfort, for convenience, or ease, I think you realize there's more going on under the surface, and perhaps we should take a serious look at what he's saying. In Luke chapter 10, verse 27, there's a conversation that's recorded with Jesus that emphasizes this very thing. Now, these ideas are talked about in other passages, but I want to look at this one specifically this morning because it models for us simply our attempts at trying to find shortcuts or loopholes. I'm going to read it out of one of the most recent and accurate translations by theologian and scholar David Bentley Hart. This is how he interprets this short passage. 
A religious expert stood up to test Jesus, asking this question. Teacher, by what deeds may I inherit life in the age? And Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he replied by saying, you shall love the Lord your God out of the whole of your heart and in the whole of your soul and in the whole of your strength and in the whole of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responded by saying, yeah, you've answered correctly. Do this and you shall live. But the man wishing to vindicate himself said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? The man is trying to test Jesus by asking how he can be blessed and experience the fullness of life. Now, we've often interpreted this passage as asking how we can get to heaven, but that isn't what this man is asking. That wasn't a Jewish concern. The question is how one can live in and experience the blessing of God in their lifetime. After the man's response, Jesus seems to say, sounds like you've got it figured out. Keep on and you will experience the fullness of life. But the man's next statement is a clue to perhaps why he isn't. The first question was a test. I don't think he was prepared for Jesus to agree. He was an expert in religious law. He was hoping for debate. But Jesus said, good for you. Sounds about right. You should be experiencing the fullness of life with that outlook. The man had the right words, but doesn't know how to integrate them. Maybe he doesn't seem to believe that they're interconnected. He immediately is looking for loopholes. He wants things qualified. Jesus seems to teach that the compounding effects of them all is what leads to life. Love God with all of who you are, mind, body, and soul, and love your neighbor, those who become others in your life, and love them in the same way you have learned to love yourself. But who's my neighbor? The man asks. You see, his dilemma's in the middle. As a religious leader, he must think he knows how to love God better than most. We don't know the state of this old man's self-worth, but we do know that he's wondering about who he doesn't have to love. Who is neighbor? And Jesus' answer about who his neighbor is is shocking. We won't go into it today. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan, a provocative story about grace and kindness in places unexpected and indifference in places it shouldn't be. The story emphasizes that someone who is this religious le- who this religious leader might consider an enemy or someone he may dislike is most likely his neighbor. You see, perhaps it isn't up to you to decide who your neighbor is. Maybe your neighbor finds you, those who we find on our path of life. That's what this story Jesus tells us an answer embodies. When you read an article about stumbling on a cure for a deadly superbug, simply by following a simple recipe that includes combining pretty simple items, and when the instructions include things that don't seem to matter, it would be easy to disregard their importance. When the scientists substituted the brass pot, the recipe didn't work. Yet how significant does the type of pot seem? I read last year that Freya's research is now in human trials. She followed the recipe. It encouraged me to follow Jesus' lead. Not just to believe in Jesus, but to believe him when he says, do this and you will experience life. 
loving God with mind, body, and soul, loving others as I love myself. This is how we experience life. When we start messing around with a recipe, we don't know what we're going to end up with, but most likely it won't be the life of the age. But who's my neighbor really? And how important is it that I love myself, that I have self-compassion? Well, how can you love God if you can't in some way comprehend his love for you? There is an intersection between learning to truly see yourself with love and compassion and learning to love others. Sometimes it happens in reverse. Sometimes it begins with the discovery of God's love and the rest just begins to take shape. But regardless of how everything gets put in the brass pot, all of these ingredients are what leads to a vibrant and fulfilling life. But the substitutions begin. And we wonder why our antibiotic isn't killing our superbug and why our faith isn't bringing us life. Jesus in his other teaching lays out some pretty specific ideas about love and joy, about anxiety, fear, and hope, charity, wealth, and suffering. His instructions are specific and yet we make so many substitutions. Sometimes in our versions of following Jesus, it doesn't really look like there's much following going on. As I've said before, following Jesus doesn't take you to Easter. It takes you to wherever he's going. Following means being wherever it is that God is leading and trusting that this is where you're supposed to be for such a time as this. That these experiences, whether good or bad, are meant to be a part of something bigger. The good news is you don't have to know how it works. Just trust that in following these ideas about love and life, something greater is happening. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn because they will experience comfort, is it possible that there's a form of comfort in the experience of grief that can only be found in loss, that awakens us to a deeper way of being here? When Jesus says, love those who treat you poorly, what he is getting at, are we to love difficult people just because they need it? Or is it possible that there is something that happens in us when we love somebody without the guarantee of being offered the same in return? And is it possible that what happens in these moments seems to only happen in experiences like this? Is it in these moments that some of the greatest divine activity happens in our lives? And how many of Jesus' teachings are about life, about love, about forgiveness, about generosity, about humility and non-judgment? And how many of these teachings are meant to only touch our souls? None. If you read them, they're meant to engage the whole of our being. They require us to think, and more often than not, to change our thinking. I'm pretty sure they'll require our bodies. There's action. There's physical bodily movement and things like forgiveness and love and humility. To treat others the way you want to be treated, that is full of body, mind, and soul. And when all three of these things are engaged, something spiritual happens. Something bigger than the sum total of the, of the individual parts is going on. In trusting God, faith is required. And that is about not knowing how all the disconnected parts of our lives are connected or working together. But choosing to believe Jesus when he says, love, forgive, be humble, be generous. When he says, don't judge, there's more going on here than just me letting go of my opinions. When I begin to do my acts of kindness in secret so I don't receive any recognition, Jesus knows what he's talking about. 
because my act of kindness is combining with someone else's suffering to create humility in my life and gratitude in theirs. And the compounding effects of seemingly disconnected things. This is how spirituality works. In the end, that person's need becomes an opportunity for me to grow and let go and trust that God is up to something. Nourishing ourselves so we become healthy in mind, body, and spirit comes from consuming what it is we need, not just what we want. It is possible that what we are searching for to give us a fulfilling and vibrant life in spite of our circumstances can be learned from listening to and following Jesus. It's just so much easier eating out of our freezer and microwave. We forget sometimes how to cook ourselves, but Jesus tells us how to cook up a life that matters, that nourishes. And the recipe is simple. It's not easy. We get our hands dirty, but it's so rewarding. And if we can find the cure for physical disease from a thousand-year-old medical textbook, is it possible that in the 2,000-year-old message of Jesus, there is something that offers a guidance and building a life of the age. Yes. <laughs>